I would have liked that introduction every week. It would have been nice. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter 3 this morning if you want to find your way there. It's good to see you all. It's good to see people in person and worship in person with you. Um, Susie mentioned, because I love you, I just want to bring a word from them and also a word from the city to say we are so proud of this church. This last city serve uh, was probably about half the amount of people involved that it had been in the, a few years before. It's all this COVID restrictions and stuff we had to do. But as we were thinking about it, we thought, you know, this might be the most important city serve we've ever done. I had so much fun driving around all over the city to different locations and seeing the joy I had, the joy that people had in getting out and serving. Uh, it, it felt like people were just, like, it, they were just excited to be out doing something, doing something that was positive and kingdom-focused. I saw relationships built between the church and the city. I saw the blessing that the people of God were to our schools, our parks, our homes, and our nonprofits. Quick story, there was a woman uh, that was connected with Life Network that had decided to keep her child. And she said, but I, all I know is I, I, have a, I have like this trailer we live in. And because I love you, got some churches together and said, no problem. And we descended. Now, I mean, now we can only descend with four people because of COVID. But the four people descended and they were, they were like a, a, an interior designer, her father that did all the work, and two volunteers. And they ripped all the flooring out. They, they took this uh, trailer down to the nubs, and they built it back. And it was a beautiful home. It was a, it was a, a, a nursery for this new child. Just there, There's large-scale stuff, but there's small-scale stuff. And I love that how 80-plus 80, 80 of the people that were serving on that day were pulpit rock people. And so I just wanted to bring this word of the morning just to say this. I love that in the middle of all the insanity of our world, this church continues to stand up and step out for the gospel. Because you can't quarantine the kingdom. And you guys are out there doing it. So we're going to keep moving forward. Thank you. Well, switching gears, I came across some funny questions that kids had written to God. Kids are funny because they don't know what you're not supposed to ask. And not what you're not supposed to say. So let me show you a couple of questions that some kids ask God. Dear God, is Reverend Co. a friend of yours, or do you just know him through business? <laughs> Donnie. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. <laughs> By the way, that does work. Like, there's some theological depth and weight to that question right there. Here's another one. Dear God, are you really invisible, or is that just a trick? That's Lucy. And I thought this one was pretty good. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> I appreciate Nan's honesty, because uh, that could have my name right there, too. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point in 2020, I have some questions for God that I would like to ask. Here's my first question for God. Dear God, what in the wide, wide world of sports is going on? Love, Thomas. Dear God, why did you open all the seals in Revelation at the same time? Love, Thomas. Or this one. Dear God, 
why are all those people so wrong? Love, Thomas. Susie alluded to it, but I'll just announce it. I'm not, I'm not afraid of it. I turned half a hundred in a few days. And in five decades of my life, I cannot recall a more divisive time in our nation. We have lost civil dialogue. Everyone is fighting mad. It seems like every single morning I wake up and there's a new argument. There's a new panic. There's a new thing I'm supposed to cancel. Sides are drawn and people are entrenched. And, and what, what, what I'm seeing that's different than ever before is the other side is not just wrong. They're evil. But it's not just out there. These conflicts we're seeing are in here. They're in our churches, in our classrooms, our communities, our bedrooms, our boardrooms. Couples have been finding themselves in small spaces with each other, balancing work and personal life 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then you throw kids in the mix. This is what's called a pandemic pressure cooker. And so what I'm wondering right now is this, how we handle conflict may be more important than it's ever been. Now, there are a lot of questions that those kids asked of God and some of the questions I asked of God that may not get a direct answer on this side of the curtain. But there is one question that God gives us a very clear, direct answer to in James, and it's this question. Dear God, What's causing all of this fighting? Love everybody. Now today's, today God's word is going to give us some guidance on the conflicts in our life. And I, I want to make this practical so we don't just leave it out there in the world. So I want to ask you to, to, to lean in with me for a moment. And I want you to think about a conflict that you've been in recently. Now, this might be something that is major. It may be minor. It may be something that happened in person in an interaction with somebody. It may have happened online, and it's just one of these things where you just posted one too many times. It's a quibble, a standoff. And what I want to ask you to do, whether you're in this room or you're watching it at home or at a group, would you be willing just to pause for a second and pray about this question. Jesus, would you speak to me this morning about this conflict in my life? Love me. Amen. Let's see if he does. We are in the book of James. James is a first follower of Jesus Christ, and he's giving guidance to other first followers on how they can better follow Jesus. And there's a theme that we've picked up so far in this book over and over again, and it's why for many people, James is their favorite book of the Bible, because it's so practical. And this theme is this. If I want my faith in Jesus to change things around me, I first have to let my faith in Jesus change things inside of me. Today we're going to continue that theme of inside-out change as James gets to the issue of conflict. Here's kind of the premise. I'll, I'll go ahead and show my card here. Here's kind of what I'm throwing out here today. If we want to be people who make peace around us, we have to let Jesus deal with some peace inside of us. 
So in our text today, we're actually going to discover the number one mistake people make when they get into conflict, and then we're going to discover the source of what is really happening within us that keeps us from peace. But I want you to catch this. It's not just pointing out what's wrong. James is going to give us hope. Hope that in the middle of conflict, we can be people who are there to bring peace. We got some peace to bring. So we're going to start in the letter of James, chapter 3, verse 13. James begins his dialogue about conflict with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's a strange place to start for a conversation on conflict, right? You think that James might say something like, well, who is right among you? Who has the correct answer among you? Who has the truth among you? Let's start there with what's right and wrong. Instead, James says, I want you to consider wisdom. Now, wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is not facts. It's not scoring the highest on the test. Wisdom is the lens through which we view something. And somehow, wisdom is going to play a part in how we cope with conflict. So how do you know if you have wisdom? Well, he goes on. Well, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Oh. Good conduct and meekness. This is wisdom. So clearly, wisdom is not about what you know. It is about what you show in your life. And we've already seen James tell us, don't just be doers of the word, I mean, don't you, uh, to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Last week, James said, be doers of the word and not just speakers of the word. So he's kind of pushing us to move. Don't just talk about the word. Don't just be people that uh, believe certain things. Be doers of the word. Earlier this summer, we had a series called Armchair Quarterbacks. Remember that? Kind of a fun idea. And we invited a whole slew of different people up on the stage to teach us, to share their wisdom. But I want you to know that those people were not invited up just because of what they knew. They were invited to share because of the good conduct of their lives. We wanted to learn from people that show their works in the meekness of wisdom. And that's who they were. Now, the reason that uh, James is focusing so much on wisdom right here is because actually he's about to tell us there are two kinds of of wisdom. There are two lenses that for, through which you could look at this world. One is going to lead to ruined relationships, and the other one will lead to peace. So we're going to identify today, which lens am I looking through in this conflict? Well, the first lens of uh, wisdom is found in verse 14. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This lens of wisdom starts with me. What I want, what I need. It has bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy is a really beautiful phrase. It's just, it's, it's where I'm unable to rejoice in your joy because I'm so focused on the fact that I don't have it. Selfish ambition. I'm looking at this conflict through my own selfish lens, my self-centered lens. How do I win in this argument? How will I get what I want? And bitter jealousy and selfish ambition both spring from a heart that thinks, well, this is about me. And what happens when someone's heart is driven this way, when you look at the world through the lens of it's about me, we only end up listening to the wisdom 
that we want to hear. Do you remember that fable about the emperor's new clothes? Remember that old story? There was an emperor of this kingdom who was in love with himself and, and with his appearance, and he commissioned the finest tailors in the land to come and, and, and sew for him a beautiful robe and clothes. Now, two scam artists showed up, and they said, well, King, we are the greatest tailors in the land. We can make you the most beautiful cloth, but here's one catch. It's so beautiful that anyone who is ignorant will not be able to see it. The king was like, well, I, that's, I like that. Put that together. So they sewed this suit together for him, which, of course, was what? Nothing. It didn't really exist. And they pantomimed putting it on him, and he put it on, and he looked in the mirror, and they said, oh, king, do you see how beautiful this is? Well, the king didn't want to admit that he was ignorant, right? So he says, yeah, this looks beautiful. This looks great. He decided to go outside, and he paraded through the streets of the city, and everyone's cheering and kind of snickering to themselves. The king kept parading and parading, and finally there was a young boy that didn't know what he was supposed to say, and he just said, but the king's naked. The reason I tell you that is in the same way, when we focus on ourselves in a conflict, when we focus on what we deserve, what we only listen to the wisdom that tells us what we want to hear. We're like that king. And what's crazy is, no matter what, how wacky, how foolish, how sinful a course of action will be, there will always be someone out there to back your play. There will always be someone out there to go, yeah, you should do that. Yeah, you do deserve that. And so it's a tricky thing. You can't just rely on other people because you can always find someone who will say, yeah, you know what, in this conflict, you are right. This wisdom is a wisdom that is self-focused. And James tells us it's dangerous. Look at this. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. All three of these words are talking about living your life without taking God into view. It is looking at life through a lens where God is left out of the picture. And this is the number one mistake people make in any conflict. It's the number one mistake I make in any conflict. I tell you this, I make it weekly in my life, if not more. It is the hardest fight in my life. And that is this. When my focus is not on God, but it's about what I want, what I need, what looks like for me to win. It's about what you need to change. It's about what you need to do. It's about how you did this. Well, Thomas, why is, that such a, why is that such a mistake? Well, James says, look where this leads to. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When I am putting myself first, the end result will be confusion in my life, and it will be a string of broken relationships. I'll leave disorder in my home, in my workplace, in my church. I will leave vile or worthless practices in my wake. Because when I start with me, there's no way for you and I to resolve this conflict unless you come towards me. You have to admit wrong. You have to agree I was right. You have to change your behavior and alter your course. And if you don't, then I get to keep justifying my actions even if it leads to disorder, broken relationships, and vile practices. But 
been married for 22 years. And I, <clears throat> I guess I was surprised. I thought after 22 years that I would fix this. It's still there. It's still there. It's still the hardest thing to not see the conflicts I have with my wife through the lens of, but what about me? Now James says, now there's a second lens. You could put on some different lenses of wisdom. And it starts with a completely different focus. Instead of focusing on yourself, 317, James says, but there's another wisdom, and it's from where? It's from where? Above. This wisdom is not a centered on me, it's centered on above. True wisdom has to come from outside ourselves. It has to come from outside all ourselves. It has to come from God. This is why James told us in chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask what? Who? God. When we're focusing on ourselves, it's so easy to have wisdom that sees things through the long the wrong lens, but when we shift our focus to God, something can happen. Listen, James tells us. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Just pause for a minute and just think if if this sentence was driving the national discourse in our nation, where could we be? All these words describe a shift, a shift from my opinion, my need, my expectations, my ambition, and they are shifting us to see this thing from God's point of view, to step back and see the other person, and this can lead to peace. As I mentioned a moment ago, I think after 22 years of marriage, I think this is the hardest hurdle for me to clear when Jessica and I get into disagreement. Here's what happens. It's happened so many times, I don't know when I'm going to learn. We get into a fight. I am hurt. I am wounded. I am so present with the pain of how she's not meeting my need, and my natural response is I want to self-protect myself. I want to rationalize my behavior. Well, she didn't do this, so I get to do this. And it is the most immense act of faith to set aside myself for a moment and say, okay, I am hurt. I am wounded. But I'm going to set that aside for a moment, and I'm going to focus on God and how he can help me care for this person in front of me. Because here's the big gamble I'm rolling. My big fear, I'm just being honest, my fear is, okay, God, I'm going to set my pain over here. I'm going to set it right over here. I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to love on her. I'm going to focus on her. I'm going to care for her. And when it's over, I'm trusting that we're going to come back to that, right? Because my big fear is that that just piles up and piles up and piles up. I trust that if I do this, God can work in our relationship And that God says, I still care about this, Thomas. I'm going to come back and deal with it, maybe through her, maybe through a friend, maybe through you and I, but that's not forgotten because it's important. So it's not wrong to have kind of a self-interest. It's just a self-focus that gets us off track. And that's why I've come to see that the number one mistake we make in any conflict is self-focus. What am I going to get? When do I get to be met? 
And here's the problem, is that self-focused wisdom has already lost. It's already moving towards disorder and death. And when we start with our opinions, our ambitions, our expectations, we are being removed from the playing field of peace. Okay, well, wow, I I could probably recognize times in my life where I've been a little self-focused, but how do I change that? Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I don't like the word meekness. I like words like courage, bold, strength, power, and then they're like meekness. Meekness. I always think meekness means weakness, right? You know, this word actually describes a horse. So imagine you have this powerful horse, a horse that could trample anyone in this room. And yet this horse has been broken and trained so that a guy could, or gal could sit on top of this horse and using only a tiny little piece, a little bit, could control and direct where this powerful horse goes. That horse has not lost a single iota of power, but now that power is directed towards good. I love that. That's what meekness is. Meekness is... There's a bit in my mouth that somebody else put here. For us to have this wisdom, we have to be submitted to somebody else. To put our desires, our opinions, our power under the authority of a wisdom that's outside ourselves. Who is this wisdom? Paul tells us in a letter to the Corinthians, our wisdom is Christ Jesus. That God actually said, I'm making Christ Jesus your wisdom. He's going to be the writer. You're going to have a bit in your mouth. You're still going to have all the power you had, but it's going to be directed now towards the right purposes. And you begin building a life of wisdom when you submit submit to the one that God made our wisdom, and his name is Jesus Christ. When you say, I'm determined to go right when you pull me right, and I'll go left when you go left, and I'll go forward when you go forward, That's how you begin to move from being hearers only of the word to doers of the word. I've come to see that as a person who personally, I really hate conflict. I've met people that love conflict and I just don't understand them. I never argue with them because I don't like conflict, but I just don't understand them. I really hate conflict, but I realize that the clashes of our lives are chances for us to choose who is really first in my life. When you get into conflict, that's the choice. Are you first? Is he first? So the question we ask when we step into a conflict is this. What's driving me in this conflict? Is it me or is it God? So James is showing us in chapter 3 the number one mistake that people make in conflict is they start with this kind of self-focused wisdom. And then with that backdrop, James says, now let me explain the true core of why there's conflicts. Now, I want you to remember something, because it looks like we're about to jump into chapter 4. Remember that if you ask James about, hey, James, I really like chapter 4 of your letter, he'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I wrote a letter. I know, but no, but chapter 3, verse 7, he's like, no, I wrote one letter. I don't know what. We came along later, and to make it easier for us to refer to things, we added all these numbers and chapters and things in. So when you're reading James's letter, it's not like he stopped and said, whoo, I'm going to go take a break, take a shower come back and write another chapter. He just keeps going. So what he says in chapter 4 is a continuation of this thought. Here he goes. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Good question. I think it's easy for me to answer that question by saying, well, they do. <laughs> James, have you ever been on Facebook? <laughs> if you got on Facebook and saw some of the nutty stuff, people, it, you would see where all the fighting is. Have you ever turned on C-SPAN? Did you watch any debates in this last couple of weeks, James? You would see it's all about ideology and, and political. Th what, this is what's causing it. James says, or is it your passions that are at war within you? James is pushing against me by saying it's not about what's happening out there. It's about what's happening in here. It's my own passions. And more than ever, I feel like this year, I've been trying to rationalize my conflicts. Well, it's not about me. It's about what's right. It's about the principle of the thing. It's about the fate of the nation. It's about ideology. James says, okay. Have you looked at your own passions? How do my passions play out in the conflicts of my life? James gives us two examples. First he says, well, here's one way. Um, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. One way that passion plays out in my conflicts is when I want what I do not have and cannot obtain. I want something from you. Respect, love, agreement, whatever. I want something from you, and if you don't give it to me, I may fight with you, I may quarrel with you, and then this is kind of crazy, I may murder you? That's a pretty strong word. But it does remind me of this. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus also used the word murder? And everybody's sitting there listening to him going, well, I've never murdered anyone, so I guess this doesn't apply to me. Why would Jesus talk about murder? Well, murder is not just actually killing someone. It is representative of the core attitude in our heart we have towards others. James is shocking us with this word to understand that when we don't get what we want, our hate exposes the state of our heart. I've never thought I would actually murder someone, but I can tell you over the last year, there's been a few times I have hoped that bad would befall people that I disagree with. Isn't that crazy and horrifying? Thomas, you're, who are you up there? You know, you're preaching God's word and you tell us that you've hoped bad things would happen to people? Yeah, because James is reminding me it's, it's deep in there. So sometimes our passions lead us when I'm like, I want what I don't have from you. You should give it to me. But then James says, and actually, this thing goes deeper than you thought. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So this is where, I, a minute ago I was angry because you won't give me what I want. Now I'm angry because God won't give me what I want. In other words, we desire we don't have, and instead of talking to God about it, our selfish pride leads us to fight and quarrel. And when that doesn't work, then we say, well, I, look, if you're not going to give me what I want, and God, you're not going to give me what I want, I'm just going to go get what I want, wherever I want. This is especially true in our lives when we feel like we have gone to God and asked and asked and asked, and he hasn't answered. You know, you're not going to meet my need? 
God's not going to meet my need, I'll meet my need. And James says, this leads us wrongly to our passions. Passions, in this original language, is where we get a word that we use today called hedonism. Hedonism means I live for my own pleasure at all costs. Now, I do want you to know something. I know this church believes this strongly. The Bible says that God richly provides us with all things for our pleasure. I believe 100% that God said, oh, I created that you that you would enjoy and have pleasure in life, that you'd eat great food, that you'd eat the best meat, that you, yeah, you would drink and laugh and be with friends. I created this world so you would have pleasure in it. But when we begin to put our pleasure in an unhealthy place, when it becomes something that we're driven by, then we'll chase the wrong things in life, is what James is saying. I had a heartbreaking conversation about four months ago with a man who was sharing with me that he had had an affair. His marriage was in a place where he wasn't getting what he wanted or what he thought he should get out of it. So let's, let's play this out in James' language. She's not giving me what I want. I've been praying and praying and praying, and God's not giving me what I want. And so he ended up, through a series of events, in the arms of another woman. Sitting across the lunch table him, from him, and he said this, Thomas, here's the craziest part. It's like I was sitting in a five-star restaurant with my wife, and I got up from the table, and I went out to the alley, and I opened up the garbage can, and I began to eat from there. I had this legitimate need for connection. His need was legitimate. What he wanted was legitimate. I had this legitimate need for connection and relationship with my wife, and I went outside to meet it in an illegitimate way, and I ended up eating trash. When we allow our pride to take over our passions, and when we fall in love with getting what we want, we go outside God's ways to get what we want. We can eat the trash. Let's be honest. We've all eaten trash. Well, then what do you do if you have this need and they're not meeting it and, and God's not meeting it? Well, let me come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to just show you, James says, the end result. When we walk through life, <coughs> excuse me, when we walk through life with this focus on ourselves and, and our own needs and desires and passions, what happens? Well, it's this. Self-focus always results in conflict. Always. It's conflict within myself. James says your passions are at war within you. It's conflict with others. It causes quarrels and fights among you. And it creates conflict with God. James says God may reject your prayers. You ask and do not receive. What do I do? If I can't make you meet my need and God won't meet my need, then I, I don't want to go out and eat the garbage. I mean, tell me, come, give me some help here. I wish I had a great answer for this. I really do not know. I really do not know. I'm wrestling through this right now. Why does God answer and not answer some prayers? I don't know. But James does give us two things to consider if we're in a situation he says, you do not have because you do not ask. So first question I'm asking myself is, am I really asking God? 
There are some things in my life, how often am I actually saying, Jesus, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to bring this to you. Am I really bringing my needs, my hurts, my passions to God? Then James says, well, you ask, that's good, but you don't receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your passions. And there are times I need to go back and evaluate, God, I'm asking for this thing, but why? Is this really just so that I can avoid some pain? Is this really just so that I can feel like I won? Is this really just so I can uh, see what I want to have happen happen? Or am I stepping back and asking you to be involved in my heart and align myself with you? I don't want to use shame or anything or saying, well, the reason your prayer is not, asked, is not being asked, be, answered is because you're doing it wrong. I'm just throwing out to you, if there's a need in your life that's not being met by somebody and it's not being met by God, could one of these two questions be something you need to enter into? Am I really asking God to meet this need? Am I really asking God to align my passions with his? And if we want to be people who start to make peace around us, we have to be people who let Jesus deal with some peace inside of us. I've shared already, I'm wrapping up, but I've shared already, this is difficult for me because I would rather make the problem about you. Your point of view, your political opinion, your behavior, your need to change. Yet James says, let's start with the peace inside of you. Now, I don't know how Jesus is going to deal with the peace inside of us. He may change another person's heart. He may change your passions or show you that what you wanted wasn't what you really wanted. He may give you some time. He may develop patience. He may supernaturally meet the need. Or, and this is hard, maybe Jesus is doing something in your life that's much bigger than that need. And he's not going to change that thing around you because he's trying to change that thing in you. I'll close with this. I had the honor of hearing John Perkins recently. John is a 90-year-old man who has spent the last 65 years working towards racial reconciliation in our nation. The organization that I volunteer with, I work with a little bit, got to do an interview with him. It was amazing. Now, I thought the interview would be John, after 65 years of civil rights movement, telling us all kinds of answers and strategies. John, what do we need to do? Well, you need to do A, B, and C. I was ready, notebook out. Instead, he talked the entire interview about his own heart, his own pride, his own hatred of others, the change that God was doing in his life, And we finally asked him point blank. We're like, okay, give us something. What's the only thing that can heal the racial division in the United States? He said this. Brokenness leads to reconciliation. He said brokenness is the opposite of selfish pride. Brokenness allows us to enter into our brother's brokenness to feel their pain. This man just wept, wept, wept about his own need for brokenness. And I don't know about you, but I'll just say this. The next few weeks, I know me. I can get angrier and angrier about all I'm seeing. And I want to navigate the passions within me that are selfish and prideful, and I want to make peace. So let me just call you to this. Church, we need wisdom from above. 
to navigate where our words and works will come to bear on the conflicts of our world. Not the wisdom that's driven by our pride or our selfishness or our need to win as individuals or as a denomination or as a group of faith. We need wisdom that's driven by humility that we don't know at all. A wisdom that puts God first and asks God to meet us in our deepest need. So as we close in prayer, I want to I pull you back to a moment a few minutes ago where you thought about a conflict that you were in. Might be with somebody online. You might be with somebody on your row. Something at work. Would you just enter a moment of prayer around these questions? Jesus, in this conflict, am I focused on me or you? In this conflict, Jesus, am I looking to you to meet my needs? Jesus, in this fight, are you wanting to change a piece of me? Are you wanting to align my passion with yours?